Welcome to the Endpoints Podcast, presented by the ALS Therapy Development Institute. I'm Jonathan Gang. ALS TDI's primary mission is to discover treatments for everyone with ALS. Every day, our scientists are testing drugs to find the next compound with the potential to make it to clinical trials and beyond. Currently, one of our most promising leads are a group of molecules called copper complexes. These copper complexes, also referred to as redox metabolism modulators, have demonstrated signs of efficacy in ALS-TDI's cellular and animal models of ALS. Currently, our scientists are hard at work looking for a lead molecule to advance toward clinical trials. Today, on Endpoints, we're joined by Dr. Fernando Vieira, ALS-TDI's CEO and CSO, to tell us more about what copper complexes are, how ALS-TDI discovered their potential for treating ALS, and where things stand in their development. Well, first off, uh, thanks for joining us today, Fernando. Um, And to start, maybe we could just talk about basically what copper complexes are, you know, I know most people listening obviously know what copper is. So how are the molecules that we're talking about today different from, you know, the material in people's pipes or copper wires or things like that? Um, that's a good question, John. Um, so first I'll just say, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the chance to, to explain this project. Um, yeah, uh, we're we're talking about a series of complexes that we've described in a few different ways um, at ALS TDI over the past like year and a half or so, and um, so these are are called copper complexes, and um, they we've also described them as uh, redox modulators, and so um, they're different from copper in that. Um, in the same way that, or maybe this is a reasonable analogy in that how, you know, salt is sodium chloride and that is quite different than, um, chlorine and sodium, right? Like they're, they have quite different properties. So we all know that copper is a metal that's often used in pipes. Um, it's also a trace metal, um, that has a lot of biological functions, Um, and when I say trace, I mean that there's really small amounts are, are needed for function for a human. Um, but if you get beyond those small amounts, you can do some harm. So usually, um, single copper ions or single atoms of it are associated with specific proteins, um, in a cell and those proteins have a job. If you have a lot of free copper ions floating around, um, they would be really problematic. They can be poisonous. So these copper complexes that we're talking about um, cradle, right? So they include copper ions, but they almost act like a cradle that holds that copper ion. So it's not free and floating around in a way that it could wreak havoc in the body. Um, And they're hopefully designed to deliver the copper where it should go to be helpful in the context of ALS. Got it. And I'll just ask this as a follow-up because it seems 
like a pretty important point to emphasize like co- these copper complexes as a potential treatment um you know taking copper in whatever form you can get your hand on it um putting copper in your body it's that's not in this very specific formulation has the potential to be really harmful that is that correct yeah so one can suffer from copper poisoning um and it doesn't take a ton to get there um it's really uh well documented that you can have liver toxicity uh specifically liver toxicity is a really big problem uh but but it can also do a lot of damage to your blood cells so your red blood cells and your white blood cells and that can end up causing really uh, big problems for your kidneys so it's really important that we not think that when we're talking about copper being efficacious in the context of ALS it's certainly not like a free copper sub supplement uh, it's not um we are inventing molecules that are designed to deliver copper in a way that mitigates or reduces the toxicity risks this isn't the first potential treatment that we've heard about with copper for ALS so how is this different than uh, copper ATSM uh that's a, another good question so um i guess i'll i'll start by talking a little bit about copper ATSM so um Copper ATSM is a drug that is already in clinical development. Um, it's been through some clinical trials, uh, specifically in Australia, um, in people with ALS. And um, I believe a phase two, phase three clinical trial has wound down, but we we haven't heard the readout yet from that trial. Um, and that's been on the ALS scene for a while. Um, it actually um, was tested by um, uh, Dr. Beckman out of Oregon State University and Dr. Crouch, um, also an investigator out of Australia in preclinical mouse models of ALS years ago. Um, and they uh, demonstrated efficacy that it made the SOD1 mice live uh, better and longer lives. And uh, one of the things that we try to do when we have the resources available to do it at ALS TDI is to attempt to replicate uh, findings um, that have been published in the ALS space in these different models. And usually when we've done that, we haven't seen efficacy. Um, copper ATSM was a notable exception. We tested it in uh, SOD1 mice. Um, and we saw an improvement. Those mice lived a better and longer life. And in fact, we published those results. And I think uh, that publication actually did go some ways to uh, helping um, the drug move forward into clinical testing. Um, the idea around the efficacy of copper ATSM, especially at that point in time, was that it was doing something really specific to SOD1. So SOD1 is a gene which can be mutated in some cases of familial ALS. So it accounts for maybe about 2% of all ALS cases are these mutations. And SOD1 is actually also known as copper zinc 
SOD1 or superoxide dismutase. That's what it stands for, copper zinc. And that's because, like I mentioned earlier, copper is important when it's associated with certain proteins. It helps them do their job. And that's actually, it has a role um, in, in helping superoxide dismutase do its antioxidant job in the cell. So the hypothesis uh, that prevailed at the time was that mutant SOD1 misfolds and it behaves badly and it doesn't hold its copper well. Um, and that's what makes it uh, toxic. And that perhaps copper ATSM, a copper complex, so you have copper kind of cradled in a small molecule drug, was delivering it to the SOD1 so that the SOD1 could have its appropriate behavior rather than an inappropriate behavior. And um, that was really interesting and really exciting to us. But we then thought that it would be uh, potentially limited in its efficacy um, in the context of everybody with ALS, not just SOD1. Um, we ultimately uh, executed a few interesting studies in our lab that made us rethink that and made us think that maybe it has potential uh, to be helpful beyond just SOD1 ALS. And it made us uh, want to develop new molecules that might even be better. And so to your original question is, how are these better? Um, we hope that the molecule, the copper complexes that we're developing um, will be more potent so um, be effective at lower amounts of drug being delivered, have bigger effects, so make motor neurons live better than copper ATSM itself, um, and have bigger impacts on disease progression. So like we see in the animal model, make uh, mice live a better and longer life. And then on top of that, to do a better job of mitigating against the toxicities that might be associated with copper ATSM because it does have that copper uh, with it. Uh, so those are some of the key differences that we're striving for. And can you say a little bit more about those experiments and sort of why we think it could have implications beyond SOD1? Yeah, um, that was a really interesting story, and it was definitely um, an outcome that I certainly wasn't expecting. And we all we all have you know our preconceived notions, and it's fun when science turns our preconceived notions on our head, especially when it means that you might have broader applicability of a drug. So, um, like I said, uh, the prevailing hypothesis was that. Uh, a copper complex would deliver the copper to the sod one so it folds right right so that that it ends up losing its toxic um, um, function and maintaining its appropriate function and so um the uh induced pluripotent stem cell biology team now led by uh kyle denton and and at the time um led by dr matvey lukashev as well um they had been developing uh, screening systems using cells, induced pluripotent stem cells from people with uh, ALS. And so uh, they had cells that had mutations 
in SOD1 that are known. So one that people hear about often is A4V, and there are a bunch of other ones as well. And they actually showed that cells with these mutations don't like to become motor neurons. So the way an induced pluripotent stem cell works is it comes from a healthy, or not a healthy, it comes from, it, it can come from any person, healthy or not. It comes from an adult. Um, initially, it could be derived from a skin cell, or it can be derived from an immune cell. And you reprogram them so they're a lot like an embryonic cell. And an embryonic cell can become anything. So once you take that skin cell and turn it into an embryonic cell, you should be able to coax it into becoming a motor neuron. And so that's what we were trying to do. And we're trying to do them, do it from healthy people, from people with um, ALS-related mutations, et cetera. And when the team tried to do that with cells from people with the SOD1 mutations, they wouldn't become motor neurons. They just kind of stopped when you were trying to push them through and they died. And that doesn't happen when you have uh, cells from a person that doesn't have ALS or doesn't have a, an SOD1 mutation. So that was weird. So they tried to understand this a little bit more and they were like, well, let's also just get rid of all of the SOD1 and see if that also happens in these cells. And it turns out that um, that also is a problem. If you remove SOD1 completely from um, uh, induced pluripotent stem cell, it won't become a motor neuron. And so uh, this, you know, that we were talking about, I remember Dr. Denton was chatting with me about the results outside the lab. We were just kind of hanging out after work one day. And he was telling me about it. And I was like, you know, what might help in the mutant cells is um, if you use this drug called coffee TSM that we uh, tested in the SOD1 mice and it, it made them live longer. It's supposed to help the SOD1 or the SOD1 fold the right way. And uh, he's like, all right, that's cool. I'll, I'll give that a shot. And he tried it in the mutant SOD1 cell lines. And he also tried it in the cell lines that didn't have any SOD1 at all. And it turned out that the drug helped those cells become motor neurons. That wasn't surprising given what we thought about how it worked in the mutant cases, right? We thought it was just fixing the problem of the SOD1, but that shouldn't have worked in the case where there's no SOD1 at all. You can't fix something that's misfolded if it's not there. And so when it also helped those cells become motor neurons, it made us realize that there might be something really important here that has a broader applicability to motor neurons, the cells that are most fundamental to the way we think about ALS beyond just that 2% of cases that have the SOD1 mutations. It could be anybody with ALS who has um, issues with their motor neuron function. And so that was kind of the tipping point that drove us to want to develop um, even better drugs than copper ATSM. And so have we, since then, have we learned anything more about uh, what the mechanism of action beyond SOD1? 
Yeah, I, I, there's still a lot unknown, but we have made progress in understanding that. And we see signs that um, the these copper complexes, including copper ATSM, are um, they help mitochondria, sort of the, the power plants of the cell, uh, generate um, energy for the cell or ATP molecules. So that's one thing. Uh, it, it, it helps restore impaired mitochondrial function. Um, and it also seems to reduce um, signs of oxidative stress. So oxidative stress is, um, is chemical damage um, that happens to cells um, as a function of, of just kind of working really hard. We, I don't know if the, if you think about, um, we, we see on a lot of like just metal out in the world, as an example, we see rust and that's a function of exposure to oxygen. Uh, it turns out exposure to oxygen in biological context, um, can also be, um, damaging. And so all of our systems have, um, we've kind of got cleanup mechanisms that uh, may be adequate in some cases to protect against that biological rust, um, but are often inadequate. And there's evidence in ALS that it's inadequate. So we think these molecules may be supportive there as well. And so since we discovered this, what work has been done at ALS TDI to continue moving these copper complexes forward toward uh, clinical trials? So uh, one big step um, that Dr. Denton made um, was to um, turn that system, that observation uh, that these uh, IPSCs won't become motor neurons into um, a screening system. So that means kind of a, a systematic automated system. It's like, think about it this way. You could build a, a car by hand in your garage, or you can have um, sort of a factory setting that makes the same car over and over and over again. And one is much more efficient than the other, right? So um, he turned that system, uh, the equivalent of the kind of doing it in the garage um, by hand into an automated system that you can do over and over and over again. And what that allowed us to do is test many um, related copper complexes, um, so hundreds of copper complexes at many di different concentrations to see if we could reveal um, molecules and invent essentially molecules that were much more potent um, in the cell. So where it took less drug to get the same or better effects and have better effects as well. Uh, so we did a lot of that. And out of those hundreds of molecules tested, we found about like 40 ish um, that were pretty good, if not substantially better than copper ATSM at being uh, protective. And then uh, on the next big step was taking a lot of those molecules, evaluating them in terms of, you know, what looks like it could be a drug. And um, there are 
people who are experts in medicinal chemistry, pharmacologists who can look at a chemical structure and say, all right, that that looks like it's got properties. And so we have members on our team who are good at that kind of thing. And we selected some of those 40. And we then went ahead and started testing them in animals. And that's work led by Dr. Theo Hatsipetros, um, who runs our preclinical pharmacology team here. And so you first have to test, well, if you put this in an animal at all, uh, does it get them sick right away or do they tolerate it well? So you identify the ones that are well tolerated and that give you some range uh, where they'll tolerate it well enough and, and you won't see any toxicity. Um, then you check to see if you do what's called pharmacokinetic studies or PK studies for short, where you look to see, well, when you give the animal this drug orally, you're essentially eating it or ingesting it um, through their mouths, um, do, does the drug get into the bloodstream and does it get to the brain and the spinal cord where we think it needs to get for ALS? And so when it does that, then you go forward and you test it to see if it makes the mice live better and longer lives. And it turned out that, yeah, out of the ones that we selected, about a half dozen of them uh, so far um, have shown uh, to make the mice with a disease that looks a lot like ALS live a better and longer life. Um, and so uh, that's exciting for us because very few molecules, we've tested more than 500 things in these mice and um, maybe about a dozen have um, made them live a better life in a longer life. And about half of that dozen now are, are these molecules. So it's really promising and really exciting. And it's been a lot of work um, and it's iterative. Like we learn from the cell work, Dr. Denton learns from Dr. Hatsipetros and vice versa uh, as we move things forward. And in terms of moving things forward, uh, what are the next steps for copper complexes at ALSTDI? So we're still doing additional studies to find the best lead. We're in the what's called the lead optimization stage. So we're still uh, considering tweaks to the molecules to squeeze the biggest effect out of them and to have the safest one, right? So we're looking for what's called a broad therapeutic index, which means that you can... The dose that shows efficacy that's helpful to the animals is really, really low compared to the dose where you first see that uh, the drug might be toxic. And every drug at some dose can be toxic, right? So everything that's in your medicine cabinet, if you take too much of it at once, it will do harm. Um, but a good drug is one where you could accidentally take too much and not do harm. And so that means if you have a drug like that, it means you have a really broad therapeutic index. So we need to find the one with the broadest therapeutic index. Um, and then we'll have to move forward with uh, one of those or maybe two, because you often want a backup molecule in case something goes wrong, into what are known as IND enabling studies. So um, an IND, uh, it re the, that acronym represents an application that you submit to uh, the FDA. 
Uh, it stands for investigational new drug. Uh, so it's an IND application. And there are very specific studies that the FDA and other regulatory agencies for other um, countries ask for uh, before they'll let you um, test a drug in people in an initial phase one study. And so we know exactly what those studies need to accomplish, um, but there is variation in how those are executed depending on what type of drug you have. And so once we find our lead and backup, um, we'll really ramp those studies up uh, and and uh, try to accelerate as quickly as possible through those uh, to move toward clinical testing. And um, is there anything you can say about roughly what a timeline for that kind of um, progress would look like? Um, it's hard uh, to predict because you don't know what you don't know. Um, and we don't know if something that looks like the best lead right now um, will have a wart on it that makes it unfavorable. And then we'll have to sort of go back to the backup or the backup to the backup. Um, but if everything goes well, um, you hope that you can get through a lot of those studies in a couple of years. And so you know, throughout um, the story of how we discovered this potential treatment, you've talked a lot about sort of the different teams at ALS, TDI, and uh, the way that they've worked together to move this forward. Uh, just what do you think uh, this whole process says about ALS, TDI as an organization? Well, I'm super proud of how our teams have worked together and that we have this integrated uh, drug discovery engine, right? Where we have everything from uh, um, uh, target discovery to, uh, um, to cell-based assays using induced pluripotent stem cells. And we have this really robust preclinical pharmacology team, you know, led by Dr. Denton and, and, and Dr. Hatsipetros. And how um, when you, we had learned something actually in the animal model by replicating other work that allowed us to just kind of bounce off of each other and make a suggestion to the cell biology team, um, which revealed in turn something completely new, completely unexpected, the possibility that this drug could have a broader impact than just on SOD1 mutants. And then for that team to be able to build the screening system to discover new molecules, which could then immediately be handed back off to the animal team. It's just um, the sort of iterative nature and the integrated nature and how it's, it's a collaboration that's not necessarily, you know, between institutions. It's a collaboration between scientists that are all lined up in offices and labs right next to each other in this building right here um, in Watertown. And um, the we often hear about the strength and, and the power of collaboration, um, but we don't often hear about those types of collaborations that can happen even within a specific institution, which is designed um, 
to really efficiently discover and develop drugs. Um, so this program just kind of highlights um, that and, and makes me really proud of how we're built. Um, and it highlights the strength of these team members to be able to, to discover and execute. Um, and all of the team members involved, it's not just um, Kyle and Theo, it's it's all of their teams. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of, of what the, the group that I get to work with here. Awesome. Um, well, yeah, I think that kind of brings us to the end of the questions I have for today. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, no, um, just that I, I guess uh, that I'm I'm excited about the potential of these molecules. Uh, they're a major priority of ours. Um, I'm hopeful that they can be impactful one day for people with ALS. But we've got a long way to go, a lot of work to do um, to get it to that point. Um, so I never want to to overpromise because we don't know what we don't know. Uh, but I am hopeful and uh, I'm excited about it. Awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for talking with us today and explaining this. And we'll look forward to more news about these copper complexes in the future. Thanks, John. There are currently no treatments to stop or reverse ALS, but the ALS Therapy Development Institute is working to change that. To learn more about copper complexes, as well as ALS-TDI's other research to end ALS, visit ALS.net. Thanks for listening. Thank you.